The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, from Origi to Villarreal, a big week for subs on Merseyside. We're from France to Bruno Jorginho, bad week for the Pens. We look at what went down and who might in the Premier League. Check out Xhaka's Cracker and some fancy football and who we think should win Manager of the Year and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hey, listener, how are you? It's Monday, the 25th of April. Here at Totally, we've got uh, Daniel Story, Adrian Clark, and Rory Smith with us today. Hello, everybody. Hello. Morning, Hello. James. Right, yeah. Big week for, uh, well, certainly Rory and, and Story. Uh, you're heading off to those midweek uh, Champions League things, yeah? Yeah, I'm doing the Wednesday, Thursday. I think Roy's doing Tuesday, Wednesday. Nice. Yeah, we 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 don't officially recognise the Europa League at the New York Times. <laughs> Have you not? Have you not stumbled across it yet? Uh, we've written about the Conference League, oh, and yeah? I would have done the final if Barcelona had made it. Right. But on Thursday night, I think I'm going to the Italian Embassy. Oh, are you going to that thing? Yeah. Very big inquiry as to why you know Italian football isn't anymore. Yeah, my wife's really worried. Because she thinks I don't dress appropriately to attend any embassy, let alone the Italian embassy. Right. She keeps looking at me as if to say, you are not going to fit in. Have you tried out outfits in front of her? Not yet, but I believe that's on the menu this week. All right. Well, speaking of the menu, the the, the scran, as I believe it's called, I I, I think should be amazing. Is that the reason you're going along? Horncastle will also be attending, I think. Oh, amazing. Mm. All right. Well, the rest of us will be dining out on some absolutely top, Europa and Europa Conference League uh, matches, and one or two of which we might touch on in the course of today's show. Adrian, I know you're keen to get going. He is, listener. Uh, <laughs> let's start with a Merseyside derby. Uh, Burnley had won prior to this, and City had done Watford, meaning that as these two teams, Liverpool and Everton, faced off, Liverpool were four points behind City at the top of the table while Everton were, for the first time this season, in the bottom three. It couldn't have been more dramatic. Woof. Yeah, it was, it was all set up, wasn't it, for, for Everton? The pressure was on and, and it looked looked like they might just do an Atletico Madrid and just go the old-fashioned way and spoil a football match and, and ruin a really good team. And, and, and for a while it looked on, but... For me, the Toffees just forgot the one thing that really is important when you come up against teams that are much, much better than you, and that is something you do actually need to have some of the ball. And and that, I think, was their the letdown in the end, really. They just didn't have enough of the ball to relieve the pressure on their defenders. And, and, and in the end, it was inevitable, wasn't it, that that Liverpool would, would break them down. Some remarkable stats in the match. Mm. Absolutely phenomenal. Eight of Everton's 11 starters made less than 10 successful passes. That's just amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and Alan, the glorious Alan, who, who actually is a pretty good player on his day. He can, he can get about the pitch and, uh, and be competitive against anyone. He made one successful one pass. One completed pass. One successful pass. One kick-off pass. as well, wasn't it? Oh it, was just, it was a remarkable performance in, in terms of the numbers from Everton. A lot of people were going around saying, oh, it was near, a near-perfect game plan. No, it's not. It's not a near-perfect game plan. You've got to have a threat. Was the issue that they didn't have enough of the ball or they didn't have enough of the Divock Origi? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Origi is the game-changer. I think Everton clearly got spooked when Liverpool made their changes, which they were always going to do. They always had Luis Diaz and, and Origi, the kind of man of Liverpool moments, particularly in this fixture, to come on. So it shouldn't have been any, any surprise that happened. But they did seem to be a little bit surprised by this kind of new movement. Diaz driving at them from the left rather than drifting in like Jota does. Origi just popping up in the penalty area where other players aren't, which is a lot harder than it sounds. I, I mean, it was it was partly by design that Everton didn't have the ball, and I did think they were a threat on the on the counter attack. They just they just were, the, the the counter attacks they they attempted were were really exciting, but they were only ever done with one player at a time. So it was Anthony Gordon generally driving on, sometimes Alex Awobi, and they just 
it was kind of classic nosebleed territory. They got into the penalty area and then sort of looked surprised that they got there and didn't really know what to do and didn't have any support. Um, and yeah, I agree eventually that that is going to come back to haunt you because Liverpool, I don't think Jordan Pickford really made a save until Liverpool's goal, first goal. But mm. when that happened, it's it's so hard to change gear and then get yourself back into the game. Uh, was it Joel Matip giving uh, Anthony Gordon a, a nosebleed on, on one of the occasions? Should Did Everton have a case for a, a penalty at all on one of those tumbles? Well, I, I missed minutes 45 to 60 because I was having my tea and I I came in we've got children you you eat when they want to eat and I didn't see the penalty incident until afterwards and I'd sort of vaguely heard Martin Tyler talk about um oh Everton had a had a strong claim for a penalty and I didn't know if he meant maybe the one that Gordon got booked for diving in the first half and then I saw the the one that with Matip and if I'm completely honest I'm baffled that that's so controversial that isn't really even a ghost of a penalty. The only point at which there's any contact, from what I can see, mm. is is when Jordan is already halfway to the floor. I'm I'm really I can see why that maybe there was a bit of a a cheer from the Everton fans and a, and a, a sense of of injustice from them because it looked like you know one of those potential or maybe that could be a penalty you've seen them given. Mm. But I don't think you do see that given, to be perfectly honest. Rory, I I, th- I agree with you. I don't think it was a penalty in my opinion because. He steps across the defender, and it's just a it's just a coming together. I don't think Matic could do anything about it, to be honest, because he's sprinting back towards his own goal. But if that is at the other end, and it's Liverpool, I I genuinely do believe it's given. I do. I just think the the, the probability of of that being given if it's Liverpool in that match is way above fifty percent. I would say 75% chance that that gets given. So I, I understand the frustration from Everton's point of view, but in my opinion, I don't I don't want penalties given for that. Mm. All right. Uh, you had some amazing stats about Everton's first half. Uh, let's have some numbers about Divock Origi. He averages a goal every 56.5 minutes against Everton in the Premier League. That's insane. Uh, only Steven Gerrard has scored more Premier League goals for Liverpool against Everton. He's played significantly more against them. Uh he also averages a goal or an assist every 62 minutes this season, Origi. To put that into context, Cristiano Ronaldo... Have I nicked this from you, Daniel? Is this from your No, I don't score? think so. You keep going. This is somewhere else, right. So to put that in perspective, Cristiano Ronaldo averages a goal contribution every 118 minutes. So that's almost twice as good as Cristiano Ronaldo. Why on earth might he be leaving? Well, I mean, there is a... A slight caveat in terms of sample size in that before Sunday, he'd only played 71 Premier League minutes. Right. Um, but I, I, I think that's a, a it's, that doesn't take anything away from him. It's it's much harder than people think to, you know, people believe in this perception that, oh, well, he's going to come on and he's going to score against Everton or he's going to make a difference against Everton because he always does. That's a lot harder than you think when you've barely played any competitive minutes. His ability to just sprint from a standing start in terms of coming into a what was a really fevered atmosphere very raw from not playing much football and immediately he's with his first touch he he basically creates I mean it's a brilliant cross for Mo Salah but he helps to create the first goal and then gets in the right position for what was a a fabulous assist for for Luis, Luis Diaz I, I feel a bit for Diaz because the whole thing became about Origi scoring the header from one yard out it was an amazing overheader kick assist and and Diaz again is I mean he's the reason one of the reasons that that Origi is leaving because with Fabio Carvalho coming in with Diaz there with Jota not been there so long they just don't need Origi anymore and he he wants more minutes it sounds like Milan are interested I think Mm. that's been the rumours which you know it's very hard for him now because he has built this reputation as this sort of super sub this kind of man of moments and the pressure will be on him to kind of keep up that relentless, those stats you mentioned. He's not going to be able to do that when starting every week. But it's really it's really interesting for him how he picks that next club, I think. I, mm. I, I don't really think Milan's an obvious fit, but then it's a big club that he thinks he can start every week at. So wow. All right. Well, also potentially spending next season in a different league altogether are Everton, uh, now 50 points below Liverpool. Are, are they going down? Do you know what? I've I've not, thought at any point this season that Everton would be relegated until I looked at the table yesterday and realised that Burnley are two points ahead of them rather than one because I got, I got the maths wrong and that means that by the time Everton play Chelsea on Sunday 
if Burnley have beaten Watford, which is perfectly feasible because Watford are abysmal at home, right? then Everton are five points adrift. Watford with... have lost every home game since November. And Burnley, to be fair, have been brilliant since sacking Sean Dyche. So right. the, suddenly that, that, looked, that looked maybe a month ago like it might be tense draw, neither team getting what they needed. But all of a sudden you look at that and think, well, Burnley are probably favourites to win that. Watford seemed doomed. So Everton, who have got a, a vastly better squad than Burnley, who've spent half a billion quid, who should be kind of competing for the top half finish, say, could go into a game with, what, four left of the season? Five points adrift of safety. Wow. That I mean, that is it. This is as close as... Was it 93 that they, they came within 25 minutes of going down and they pulled it off against Coventry or something, or Wimbledon? A little bit later, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah it come really close once before in 93 or 94. But this is, I mean, this is absolute, an absolute emergency for them. And I heard on, on the commentary yesterday, there's this seems to be this consensus that, that Lampard knew he was taking a tough job. And obviously the structural issues at the club are massive. The ownership has been, has been terrible. The way it's been run is, is amateur. Benitez was a weird appointment. It split the fan base. It, was, it created a kind of toxic environment. And it was a tough job. But Lampard's made it look a lot harder than even that, to be perfectly honest. They, they they weren't in the bottom three when when Lampard took over, and that's where he's taken them. And I find it really weird that there, there seems to be this this consensus of opinion that Lampard is is doing the best he can. That that's that's not how this works at all. Is is the Chelsea game home or away? It's at Goodison Park. Oh well, that's something. Of course, what what a match! What narrative there'll be swirling around that one? Frank Lampard with potentially his his former club. Landing a decisive blow in Everton's survival hopes. Burnley, as you mentioned, taking seven points from a possible nine since sacking Sean Dyche. Daniel making the point that almost exactly a quarter of all their points this season have come over the last eight days. <laughs> Were you expecting that, Daniel? No, I wasn't. I really wasn't. I, I thought the... Uh, <laughs> this feels really churlish to say because they've done really well, but I don't think the owners particularly knew what they were doing when they were sacking Sean Dyche, other than removing Sean Dyche from that equation, I guess maybe because they thought he was going to leave at the end of the season and they thought they were going down with him. Um, the fact that they they went with you know interim coaches, internal appointments suggests that they didn't have anyone lined up and that they didn't necessarily believe that those coaches were going to reinvent Burnley, but they kind of have. You know, you look at, I was looking at the stats from the weekend and, you know, they Three of the nine games this season where they've completed passes like at more than 70% in a game, which is unheard of for Burnley normally, have been in the last three games. You know, they're they're trying to attack more. They're trying to pass shorter. They're defending better as well. And I, I mean, I, I'm not privy to what went on behind the scenes and, and what members of that squad thought about Sean Dyche. Maybe it's just a case that things Bet went a little Skulls bit stale. Knows. Yeah, <laughs> he'll have his intel. Um, but you, you can't doubt... The statistics. I don't believe that they would have taken seven points from the last three games with Sean Dyche in charge, and they have now, which ergo makes it the right decision, I suppose. I, I think Mike Jackson is just trusting the players, and sometimes, sometimes that can have a really galvanising effect. Under Sean Dyche, it was about the system, it was about their style, their philosophy, and I don't think some of the new signings loved it, to be perfectly honest, especially chasing... 30, 40 channel balls every single game. I think the, the, the subtle little differences here, and Daniel's touched on it, is give it to someone's feet. It's fine. Trust them to take a touch. He can look after it. He's a good player. And he'll get he'll give it to somebody else. And and they've shortened up their game, you know, noticeably and, and it's made a difference. I think the other tactical tweak is is putting Dwight McNeil on the right. I think there was a reluctance from Sean Dyche to do that. And in the last couple of games, he's been on the right. And he sometimes just a change of scenery. I was a winger that played on the left or the right. Sometimes just a change of scenery, just flipping it to the other side, just changes the whole picture. You, f you feel a different player. And, and he certainly looks reinvigorated. I mean, Dwight McNeil, when, he, when he's got the ball at his feet and he's in good form, he reminds me of Ryan Giggs when he was younger. He does, the, the way that he travels across the turf, he's not in that class. But he's, he's an exciting player that really had, just hasn't had enough of the ball at his feet this season. So, so those little changes have definitely um, definitely helped. And yeah, it's, um, they look a different team. The fixtures are kind as well. I think Southampton and Wolves weren't the toughest uh, pair of home games. But, but mm. fair play to, to Burnley for winning them. 
All right, Watford's not the tr- trickiest of away trips either. Uh, alarm bells ringing for Everton, possibly Rory for Leeds as well. They're only two points above Burnley now. They're at Palace Monday night, of course, where they can improve that. Yeah, of course, they haven't played since the Boer War, so it's hard to tell what sort of form they're in. Um, they, they, whenever their last game was, which was a lot, I, th- I think it was three weeks ago, that there was, which they won, they beat Watford, I think, at home. And there was this sense of, of relief, but also vague trepidation as they knew that if results went against them before they played again, which is Palace on Monday night, that they could theoretically be in the bottom three. And it's not quite worked out like that. But it's it's not it's not much better because Burnley have found this vein of form, as, as Daniel and Adrian have said, that you probably weren't expecting when Leeds last played, and so it it now looks like they they probably need a couple of wins rather than maybe just one to be to be absolutely secure and safe in the Premier League. They've got Palace away, is it? Adrian just mentioned that you know Southampton Wolves this time of the season probably not the, the not a bad sort of team to be playing. Um, I'd probably put Palace in that category as well. Although weirdly, if Leeds beat Palace. This is not great for a for time limited content. I apologise, but if Leeds beat Palace, I think they're only two points behind them. Which, given that you'd, you'd assume that Palace are completely safe and mm. Leeds are not, maybe suggest that both those things aren't aren't quite aren't quite accurate. But the, the only one point behind them is it only one. Mm. The I t- we've made it clear that I don't really understand how the table works already, <laughs> so that's fine. The um, so uh, yeah, I think that they need to beat Palace because it's City after that, and that is mm. not the sort of fixture you need. Yeah. Uh, and I think Leeds don't need to be going into May thinking we have to get two wins out of three or two wins out of four. That's a lot of pressure, but they are still in it. And to be honest, I wouldn't have said that that Brentford and Palace are sorry, Villa and Palace are mm. completely clear yet either. Well, Villa are what eight points? Well, I was just about to say if we're, if we're bringing in teams to the relegation discussion, Villa right. are the next cab on that rank because partly because they've taken one point in the last five games mm. and also because, crucially, they've still got to play Burnley home and away. Mm. Uh, they, haven't, they haven't played Burnley yet this season. They're sort of a bogey team. I think they've only won one of the last six against Burnley. If they lose both those games, then I think Burnley will finish ahead of Villa. The question is whether Everton and Leeds get enough points to make, make that make a difference, I suppose. Well, huge weekend uh, coming up. And, of course, Monday night, that Palace-Leeds game could Proved very significant as well. As for Liverpool, they moved back to a point behind Man City, who previously on Saturday had given Watford what for, made the D in Watford optional, all those things. Uh, 5-1 the scoreline at the Etihad. Four of those goals and the assist from the other coming from, again, a player who's on his way out, Gabriel Jesus. Yeah, and I like him as a player. I really do. I've always thought he's a... He's a he's a finisher, Gabriel Jesus, but and, and he obviously showed it in this game. But he'd only had three Premier League goals before this match, which just seems remarkable. Really, they showed on match of the day, didn't they? His, his minutes per goal ratio in a City shirt. It is second best, only to Sergio Aguero. So he's a guy that that should probably play more, and and that should probably be be given more starts. But but it's not happened for for reasons that are obvious because they've got so many other sensational players uh, and because of the fact that Gabriel Jesus almost turned his nose up at the prospect of being the main striker in the team. I think he's, he said to to Pep Guardiola he's happy to to be a wide forward now. Um, yeah, he's he's down the pecking order, but it was his day, wasn't it? And, uh, and my favourite goal was the, was the second one that was supplied by De Bruyne. If you closed your eyes and sort of just fantasised about a, a De Bruyne assist, it would be that one. It would you just you just think, well, it's 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 right corner of the box. It's an absolute whip of a cross. The ball's not going to move in the air. It's not going to spin that much. It's just going to go directly onto the head of someone, and and that's what it was. It was it was a dream assist from from De Bruyne, and and yeah, the most predictable five one win. I think mm. of the season. I think mo- most people were probably tipping four or five. Do you often close your eyes and fantasise about it? <laughs> <laughs> All the time. Do All you? the time. Yeah, what would just... be your dream, you know, when it's you? Uh, I don't know. What's your dream scenario? Well, I do remember an assist from... It might even have been a youth team game. Honestly, I, ca- I can't is remember this, what happened. Is this like Romario and Pele claiming goals they've stored in their gardens? <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's an well, assist that you produced in your garden. 
You've asked me the question. I'm I'm, I'm pulling out the dream assist that, that that I remember. I can't remember last week. I can't remember the week before, but I can remember yeah. an assist where yeah. I did a roulette that was perfectly yeah. timed to drag the ball back, to spin and drag the ball back as the defender slid in. So he slides past me as I as I drag the ball back, and then I produce the De Bruyne cross for someone to head in. That that that's the assist that I remember. I might have been 14. But it, yeah, I was it didn't say, get defender slash youngest child. I mean, potato, <laughs> potato. I know. I, I know that none of you care about this, but you, James asked me, and yeah, that I'd... for me is the dream assist. Oh, nice one. Somewhere, Michael Owen is talking about his penalty against a thirteen-year-old in similar terms. <laughs> Adrian, it's going to be hard for the rest of the show to live up to that. Uh, let's see. On the subject of City, Watford, uh, City now with their 15th consecutive win in all competitions against Watford, which is the first time any English league team has done that to another English league team. All right. 26 goals in the last five games against Watford, Manchester against City. Watford. Mm. Okay, uh, next up. Let's move on to ooh, Arsenal. It's semi-final time of the Champions League, listeners. Tuesday night sees Real Madrid make the trip to Eastlands after collecting the scalps of both PSG and Chelsea. If Ryan are going to win what would be their fifth European Cup in eight seasons, they're certainly going to have to do it the hard way as Pep Guardiola's Manchester City stand in their way. Karim Benzema has 14 goals in his last 10 in all competitions and has been a match-winning superstar for Los Blancos this season. The Frenchman is no surprise the 6-4 favourite to win the Ballon d'Or. Guardiola will have to find a way to limit his influence or just like Tuchel and Pochettino, you'll have to watch the Champions League final on the TV. In terms of the betting, Manchester City are the 4-9 favourites. The draw is 7-2 and Real are 11-2. Big price. Wednesday night sees Liverpool take on Villarreal. The Reds come into the game against the Yellow Submarine, having beaten Everton and both Manchester clubs in their last three games. So confidence and morale will be sky high for Klopp's men. There is small hope for Villarreal though. Unai Emery has shown once again that he is indeed a very good manager. But take a look at the ex-Cherry Arnott Danjama in the goal-scoring markets. He's 10 to 1 to be the first goal scorer. He scored against Bayern Munich and he's 16 to 5 any time and that looks a shrewd bet. Liverpool are 1 to 4, the draw is 9 to 2, and Virial are priced at 10 to 1. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. Begambleaware.org and remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Totally Football Show European Edition is going to be out when you wake up on Tuesday, listener. Depending on your you know nocturnal habits. Uh, among the diverse topics, might get a, a word or two about Pochettino exiting PSG and Antonio Conte and a possible swap move we'll definitely be talking about those Champions League semi-finals as I mentioned Rory and Daniel both going along to Anfield on Wednesday to see the Yellow Submarine you know at its spiritual home Merseyside uh, they are the team that keeps defying expectations and Adrian I'm sure you'll have a view on this as well can they do it to Liverpool? <laughs> well Villarreal are more capable of, of spoiling a game at Anfield than Everton, that is for sure. They're, they're masters at being well drilled and, and hard to break down, aren't they? It's you know what it's going to be. It'd be a narrow four four two, and they will they will leave zero space between the defence and the midfield. There'll just be none. There'll be no dropping into pockets to pick up the ball. They won't be able to do that. So Liverpool will have to be patient and and work out a way. It might be that they they win it off the bench again. It might be that Klopp can afford to lose one of his three central midfielders and, and, and put an extra man in attack just to, to, to throw a curveball in. It'd be, it's going to be a fascinating match tactically. But they've had a nice warm-up, Liverpool, in terms of having to break down a team that, that set up to, to be difficult to, to prize open. The difference with Villarreal is they've got more punch, a little bit more punch on the counter, uh, and they will have that threat. That, that for me, 
is what Everton lacked in the game. So, so yeah, they've, they've got a chance here. They are the sort of team I would suggest that, that Liverpool don't enjoy playing. I think that's, that's absolutely right. I, I th- there, there's a tendency to see Liverpool as having an easy run to the to the Champions League final, which is both presumptuous and I think slightly disrespectful, particularly to Villarreal. Benfica was a was a kind draw compared to what you might have had, but Villarreal beat Bayern Munich, and they didn't they didn't do that by chance. They beat them mm. comfortably in Spain, and to be honest, one nil flattered Bayern from that leg, and you know they had to ride their luck a little bit in the second leg, and they nicked it. Nick, Nick the the goal through Chutwezi in the what the eighty seventh minute, but again it's not by chance. It's not they're not kind of fluting their way to it. They are incredibly well organised. That there aren't really any stars to this Villarreal team. Someone put it said to me the other day that it's a team of, of functionaries that that everyone's own ability own a bit particular ability is kind of subsumed into the collective. So they will they will make it really difficult for Liverpool. I don't think this is a semi final like the the one against Roma. Uh, in 2018 that ended 5-2 at Anfield then 4-2 to Roma in the Olympico and they were just it kind of everyone everyone just had a great time in that semi-final it was just really good fun <laughs> Liverpool and Roma just just wanted to put on a show Villarreal don't care about the show they 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 are effective they've got options they've got depth they're really well coached it will be probably quite an un- unattractive two games but the fact that Villarreal have put out Bayern and Juve means that by definition cannot be an easy route to the final. It, they they deserve far more respect than that, I think. What about the Real Madrid game? Man City on Wednesday. Real Madrid, who, who I think surprised a lot of people with that stirring uh, 3-1 victory at Stamford Bridge to set up their, their route to this semi. Although possibly we take a slightly different, or we, we see that in a slightly different light with Chelsea's recent travails and their current predicament. What do you think, though? City? It's, I think it'll be really interesting, especially the first leg, because it, it looks like or it sounds like Kyle Walker and John Stones might be out injured and Jao Cancelo is suspended, which means I sus- suspect that Real will try and do exactly the same they did at, at Stamford Bridge, which is get Vinicius to run down that right wing because we don't know who's going to be playing at right back for City. You'd normally think it would be Ruben Diaz, but given that the absentees at centre-back as well, maybe... Guardiola will want Diaz at centre back, so they'll try and get Vinicius down that left, and they'll try and you know they'll try and find space for Karim Benzema. I suspect they'll try and do an exact carbon copy, and um, I do fancy City, but I think it will be mighty close this one. Mm. Goals, it screams goals, doesn't it? Over two legs, <laughs> I think the Real Madrid have got the strength to to hurt Manchester City in behind, as Daniel's touched on, but in midfield, City. City should be completely dominant in midfield, in my opinion. As brilliant as Modric was against Chelsea at the end of that game, I still think that that, that City's engine room is kind of... They're almost in their peak years and, and Real Madrid's are a little bit, you know... I don't like to say over the hill, but, but they're, they're past their peak for sure. I think that might be where it's ultimately won or lost. But yeah, goals at both ends, I think. Mm. Could see Zinchenko back in in a full-back for wing-back role. A, a tackle of the weekend from him, admittedly against Watford, but what, what a recovery mm. run that was on Saturday. Uh, uh, anyway, well, uh, two fascinating, I believe is the term, uh, midweek Champions League clashes. Uh, let's talk about the teams that are chasing a role in this conversation next season, chasing top four places, well, really fourth spot, or maybe third as well. Uh, this is... Probably down to just two contenders now, Arsenal and Spurs, after Arsenal's 3-1 win Saturday lunchtime over Man United. Rory, not sure if you were having your tea, stroke lunch at this time. I was having my lunch and watching the game. Nice. Daniel was actually there. Well done, Daniel. What a week, Daniel, for Arsenal. Yeah, I've, well, a week ago I said they've lost three in a row, so it's all over. You know, I, I don't think I did say it's all over. I said I'm not stupid enough to say it's all over this time. Uh, and thankfully, for once, I kept my mouth shut and it, it was proved to be a correct thing to do because both games against Chelsea and Manchester United, it's, it's, it's really strange to me is that Arteta obsesses, as so many managers do, about this idea of control and how to get fluidity within a, a controlled system. And, and his, his main key is by using these brilliant attacking midfielders in, in Erdegaard and in Saka and in Smith-Rowe. 
And there's no doubt over the last two games that there has been too much chaos for Arteta's liking. But it feels, in hindsight, like he felt that was the only way to to get something new, to, to change the message. And, and it's worked because they've won both games. They were hugely fortunate to be a rotten Manchester United team. You know, Bruno misses a penalty at a crucial time. Bruno loses the ball at the edge of the box at a crucial time. Cristiano Ronaldo is marginally offside at a crucial time. And and they could very easily have lost that game 3-1. But this is the stage of the season where you would expect Arteta to do nothing but tell you that he doesn't care because the result is the king and and they win. And, and, and you're right, they put Manchester United out of that top four race. And with, with Tottenham suddenly, you know, shot on targetless again, mm. they probably are favourites now. Again, mm. maybe even, maybe even have <laughs> uh, Chelsea's third spot in their sights. Uh, among the things that went right for them, I mean, a list that started early on with uh, Nuno Tavares with his first goal for Arsenal after just three minutes and some classic Man United defending there. But then at 2 1, United with the chance to equalise when uh, Bruno Fernandes steps up to the, to the spot. Uh, Adrian, can I ask you about that technique? which we saw Jorginho a sortie uh, on uh, on Sunday against West Ham with similarly disastrous results. Which was the worst penalty? And why do you think it is that that penalty is now proving so very, very disastrous? <laughs> I, I think the goalkeepers have seen too much of it, haven't they? And and they know that these players want to wait. They know that if the players, the players are effectively eyeballing the goalkeepers, aren't they, as they're going to approach the ball waiting for them to blink or to, to show which way they want to move. And then at the very last moment, without really looking at the ball, they pick their spot. And, and, and it's worked for a while, but I, I feel that this this style of penalty has to be on the way out because goalkeepers know it. And Fabianski pretty much said so, didn't he, afterwards? Mm. I, I, I don't know if you saw the interview he did with Julian Laurent. I, yeah, um, let's listen. Is it the worst penalty that you've... Ever saved? <laughs> that was bad. I know, to be honest, I have this thing for the for some really bad penalties. Because if you look at the last season, the Lukman penalty wasn't, uh, you know, a good one as well. So I don't know what it is. I don't know if that's my presence or something that scares them. It was great, uh, and but, and and he basically yeah, yeah, threw his hat on it, didn't he? He knew what was coming, and it was the, it was the softest penalty ever. So no, no, the worst one was was Bruno because he misses the target. But, but is that but, the thing? Because you wait so long, the shot when it comes is inevitably so soft. I don't think you can generate power mm. from a skip, can you? I, 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 hand on heart. I don't think I've ever tried this penalty. I've never, never tried that technique. But, but Only in for your me, fantasies, for, yeah, exactly. Um, to, <laughs> to to generate power, you need to plant your foot better. And 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 yeah, in my book, a penalty should be should be you know as firmly struck as possible. But but these guys have have got away with it for a long time. But it feels like the game's up. Do you know? I I remember I remember saying around the time of the Euros final that. That Pitford, I said it maybe slightly too harshly, but Pitford saving from Jorginho in the shootout isn't actually that impressive because goalkeepers should by now have worked out what Jorginho is going to do, and I'm slightly surprised it's taken this long for it to happen because he, I mean, it, Jorginho can can alternate if he realizes the keeper's not moving, he can kind of pick pick a corner and hit it with power, but nine times out of ten he's he's waiting and waiting and waiting and rolling, and I'm amazed more goalkeepers don't think do you know what I will just stand still and see what happens right Jan Sommer crucially for Switzerland very much has worked Jorginho out which is kind of the main reason that Italy aren't going to the World Cup uh, no goalkeeper was stopping Granit Xhaka's shot though uh, a whole three and a half minutes after he pulled off another of his trademark tricks that wonderful uh, 50th Premier League yellow card but that mm. shot crikey yeah, it was, can I just say where I was when when Arsenal played Manchester United? I was I was going down some some flumes in Lanzarote that were designed for four five year olds max, um, and having great fun doing so. I have to say, thanks, Adrian. <laughs> so that was right. what I was doing. But I have watched the game back. Um, oh, good. Okay. And uh, and it was a rasper, wasn't it, from Granite Xhaka? It was a it was a real drill of a shot. It's something he's he's capable of. And he had a good game, and I think he's had a good week with the Chelsea performance as well. So, yeah, Xhaka and Elneny reunited, kind of surprisingly, because Elneny hasn't had a kick for months. 
and it's it's worked all right. So no, it was a great it was a great strike, and in a way, the strike the strike was aggressive, wasn't it? It was it was firmly struck, and for me, Arsenal's success this season or otherwise is dependent on their ability to do one specific thing really well, and that's play with aggression. They're not good enough to win games playing the ball around nicely and playing softly and not getting in the faces of oppositions and maybe not playing with a little element of chaos. Mm. They need to, when they play with aggression, without the ball, you know, closing players down properly, you know, just, just being forceful. And when they have the ball, shifting it quickly, moving dynamically, moving with purpose, they're faster, stronger, infinitely more dangerous and they create space. Mm. And for those, for those star men like like Saka and Erdegaard and Smith Rowe so it's all about playing with aggression if Arsenal can do that often enough between now and the end of the season they'll finish fourth right if they don't they won't where are the Arsenal fans on on Xhaka at the moment are the, do, do they hate him again do they love him again have they stopped <laughs> hating him and started loving him again is it a love hate thing is it a hate love thing I I'm, I'm amazed that yeah, that in twenty actual twenty two, Granit Xhaka scored from twenty five yards for Arsenal, and everyone cheered. Yeah. It's amazing. Like he's, it's le- literally less than six months since they were demanding he was he was, like booted out of the club. <laughs> yeah, it, it's such a fluctuating relationship, isn't it? I think there are certain parts of the Arsenal fan base that will never like Granit Xhaka. They just won't, but they'll still find it within themselves to cheer that goal, of course, mm. or celebrate it. But no, he's he's back in vogue. And he's back in vogue because he's Arsenal's best midfielder at the moment. Thomas Partey's out. Lakonga is a work in progress. Elneny is Elneny. It, he's the best option. So you've got to get behind him. And and yeah, he, he, there are lots of good features about Granit Xhaka's game that I admire. But, but the bottom line is that there is still that feeling that over the course of a season, he will let you down at key moments mm. four or five times. And and for that reason, I don't think he's the answer long-term. I think they will look past him. But but in the here and now, he's absolutely integral to this team. And, and the Arsenal fans know it. And there's no way they're going to get on his back. No, do you remember, no chance. Do you remember the story about the, the house keys with Granit Xhaka? Daniel Will. This yeah, is exactly the sort of thing Daniel li- will remember. Yeah, yeah. In, his in little that, brother, wasn't it? Yeah, so the, the story was that Granite is the younger brother, brother of Tauland Xhaka, who plays for, I think, to play for Kosovo or Albania? Plays for someone who's not Switzerland hmm. um, and has had a kind of decent career, not as spectacular as Granite's. But because Granite was so responsible, his parents used to leave the house keys with Granite rather than Tauland. And in the way that... Um, the way that journalism works is that when you get a little fact like that, you you imbue it with enormous explanatory power. And that was taken when, when Jatta signed for Arsenal as so this is who they're getting. They're getting the, the, the kid with the to keys. The Give, yeah, yeah he, 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 he's so responsible because his parents gave him the keys that he'll be able to take on all the pressure of Arsenal. And I think it's hilarious that in all that time since, that's exactly the opposite of what's happened, that Jatta has continually done incredibly irresponsible things. <laughs> Throwing the keys down the drain. <laughs> we don't know what happened when his parents returned home, having given Granite the keys. They might that's well true, have found yeah. the house of smouldering. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> a smoldering, uh, but but anyway, um, there you go. We've we, now we've spoken a lot about Man United, so uh, why don't we hear from from United uh, legend uh, Paul Scholes? It's a disaster of a dressing room. I had a quick chat with chat with Jesse there. I'm sure he won't mind me saying he said the dressing room's just a disaster. Yeah, extraordinary moment that. I don't know if you've mm. caught that on social media. That's Paul Scholes on was it DAZN Canada? Certainly on DAZN. Uh, just dropping Jesse Lingard in it, presumably, or, or by now is the situation so far gone that no one's going to care either way? Well, I think it is because subsequently, or roughly at the same time, Scott McTominay was telling journalists that there are a whole load of problems at United in terms of players, staff and everything higher up, which kind of reminded me of that David Moyes quote about passing, defending and attacking. And, you, you know, you sort of wanted to, tap Scott and say, well, yeah, you've covered everybody there. And, and he's right. Everything <laughs> is broken. Um, and it does it does feel in over the last week or so that Ralph Rangnick's job has inadvertently or otherwise shifted to being this, you know, he's clearly not been a very good interim coach. So he sort of shifted to being this sort of hot take truth teller on just how bad Manchester United is behind the scenes in the hope that 
Eric Ten Hag will come in and at least everyone will accept that they're at rock bottom and therefore they need to give him some control. Whether they will or not is a much more complicated question. But it does seem like Rangnick shifted from, OK, I'm not going to get to do the long-term stuff. I've not done the short-term stuff very well, so maybe I'll just talk about everything that's stopped me from doing both. Can I just say, um, we've, we've, we've hammered Bruno Fernandes for, for his penalty miss. Um, the, the tackle um, on Tavares, I, I don't think we should, we should let that slide, really. And for me, that tackle is a byproduct of the environment in the Manchester United dressing room. Now, I remember coming on this podcast, I think very early on in the season, when Paul Pogba had pretty much down tools with, with Raleigh. It might have been last season at some point, where the, the, everyone was doing what they wanted. There was no accountability, and he was switching off, making daft challenges here, there and everywhere. And I think, this, I think that's creeping back into the United dressing room. When, when everyone's so fed up with each other, fed up with the situation, they lose focus and they just lose sight of, of, of normal things. And, and that, was, that was a tackle of a... It wasn't even a tackle, was it? That was, that was a malicious piece of play on Bruno Fernandes' part, born out of the frustration of being part of the shambles that is Manchester United at the moment. And the only thing that was a bigger shambles was the fact that Jared Gillett on VAR didn't do anything about it. That is a, a, a horrendous piece of officiating. That is the clearest red card I think I've seen all season. And uh, yeah, it just beggars belief that, that he got away with it. Well, while Man United's miseries continue, Arsenal now just five points behind Chelsea. In the Premier League. Uh, next up, in fact, let's talk about Chelsea and their clash with Arsenal's next opponent, West Ham. So, Mr. Guardiola, what's troubling you? I'm very tired, doctor. Tired, right. No, I'm very tired of winning. It's just too easy at the moment, you know. I need a challenge. Like finally winning the Champions League with Man City? Hey, <laughs> hey, hey. Come on. Will Pep finally do it? At Paddy Power, we can't guarantee you a trophy, but we can guarantee you money back as a free bet if one leg of your 4 plus 4 bet builder lets you down. Paddy Power! Pre-match online bet builder bets only. Minards 1 to 5 per leg. Max free bet £10 per day. 7-day free bet expiry. Excludes enhanced match odds. Eligibility restrictions and T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeCampbellAware.org This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Alonso. All right, Chelsea won West Ham nil on Sunday. Uh, West Ham, who have Eintracht Frankfurt on Thursday. So David Moyes actually resting some big players for this. Although uh, Declan Rice came on, Miguel Antonio and Bowen also were, were substitutes. But Chelsea kind of drifting badly before Christian Pulisic's 90th minute winner in this one. Is this just because they've only really got the FA Cup to worry about now? Is it because of the ongoing limbo that the the, the club finds its finds itself off off the field uh, Antonio Rudiger leaving as a as a fruit of that whole Ab- Abramovich sanctioned business what do you think it it was a really important win first and foremost that to, that Pulisic goal does probably make Chelsea safe in third whereas if they'd drawn you would have been looking at it and thinking do you know what Arsenal or or potentially Spurs might be able to catch them and they might miss out on the Champions League entirely the main factor has to be the fact that they're out of the Champions League, they know they're not going to win the title. There's a little bit of a kind of reduction in in energy levels that, that is unavoidable. We're seeing it a little bit with other teams in mid-table who've run out of things to play for as well. Um, I suspect that the, the disappointment of going out to Real Madrid after putting all that energy into the second leg, producing a performance that good and getting nothing for it, that might be a factor. I, d- I don't know how much I believe that the that the players are affected by the takeover, partly because they're going to get paid either way. Like, they don't, really care it's not like they're all Roman Abramovich's close friends I think that the uncertainty probably has had an impact initially I think Tuchel did really well to help them ride that wave 
I don't know why it would be the case that six, sort of six weeks, eight weeks later, they suddenly go, hang on, what is this about the owner? That seems really unlikely to me. I, I do think though something, something has shifted a bit at Chelsea. They don't look like the incredibly well-drilled, slick outfit that they did for basically the first year of Tuchel's tenure. They seem a little bit more ragged. The idea isn't as clear. There's lots of, even Tuchel himself, there's lots of kind of, well, I'll do this now and I'll do this now and I'll do this now. It seems much more random. It doesn't seem quite as finely tuned as it was. And I, I wonder whether that's partly to do with with the fact that you do have not just Rudiger, but Christensen out of contract. You've got Aspilicueta, who's considering going. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty. Lukaku, the bid striker, Werner apparently wants to wants to leave as well. So it, there's kind of a, a lot going on where you look at United and think there's lots of players there who who clearly don't, clearly don't want to be there. And, and you see the kind of shambles that they've become. I wonder if there's just a very small version of that happening at Chelsea. I think that's absolutely right. And and I think that we're used to seeing mid-table teams gaining that reputation for kind of on the beach or playing in flip-flops. I think when it happens with a, a higher class team like Chelsea, it becomes much more obvious when people aren't quite at their best. And I think I think Roy's absolutely right. I think that Rudiger situation is is pretty indicative of, of what's happening because it was clear that he we are told that he was prepared to sign a new contract in February. It is now clear Tuchel has even admitted that he's going to leave in the summer. And I wonder if that just sends a message, almost a sort of subconscious message to those other players of, oh, if someone's jumping ship, someone very totemic in that Chelsea team and in their cup success over the last few years is prepared to to want to leave. And he's, is so prepared to want to leave that he's announcing it before the end of the season. That must make a difference in a dressing room. And it it doesn't make them an easy squad to manage, which... Tuchel's brilliance during his Chelsea tenure is being able to kind of wipe away all that noise and manage them like a football team. In a dressing room, you need to feel part of something. You you want to feel that you're all together as one driving for the same thing. And and the the, the fact is that, that Rudiger's got his eye on something else now and so's Christensen and, and other players. This is the, the problem with letting players run down their contracts that are part of your first team that... that that focus that does go at some point, particularly when there's nothing to play for but but an FA Cup final. So I think this is quite predictable, really, and and you see it a lot in in, in the EFL actually, where contracts are much shorter. You get to this stage of the season, and, and 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 players just aren't aren't in it. Their heads aren't there, and and for that reason, you get a lot of strange results. All right. What if it's not a player, but the manager, a manager like Antonio Conte? At Spurs, who suddenly ran out of gas, parked on the hard shoulder of the top four race. Nil-nil at Brentford, second game in a row. They failed to have a shot on target. Have people worked out Spurs, or is it the fact that Antonio's allegedly touting himself to Paris Saint-Germain? That that doesn't feel coincidental. Spurs were were looking really good before Brighton. You you looked at that front three and thought, Son, Kane, Tulisevsky, it's way better than what Arsenal have got. It's better than what Manchester United have got. It's probably more, the way it functions, probably better front three than Chelsea's, to be perfectly honest. And you you looked at that and thought, right, they should sail to the top four because Arsenal are so unpredictable. Um, They could even decide the title. They'd go to Anfield, I think, the first week of May. That suddenly had the the air of, right, well, that's the game that Liverpool are going to really struggle with. And then they've just stopped. And there's no real explanation for it. I, I think the players are too good to be worked out properly. I mean, Son and Kane have created and scored more goals with each other than anybody else in in Premier League history. It would be weird if suddenly there were people were like, hang on, this is how we stop them. No, but Brentford's but, idea, what was it, Pont- Pontus Janssen sticking him on Harry Kane, which is, yeah. I guess, not rocket science. But was that particularly effective this time? I think, yeah, I think that, that, that helps. And, you know, obviously they are, they are stoppable. But the fact that you'd suddenly at the same time you'd get yet again Conte kind of the, the rumours floating around that he's at, oh, PSG could be coming up. And I, I think Miguel Delaney suggested that there might even be an, effectively a swap where Conte goes to PSG mm. and, and Pochettino comes back to Spurs. It just feels slightly, the timing is, is interesting that Spurs have this dip and and suddenly Conte's not that committed anymore. And whether that's cause or symptom, I don't know. But it, it, that's not a great recipe either, where the manager, every time there's a bit of a setback, the manager's like, hang on, maybe I don't want to be here. That's not, that's not what you need. Hold up. 
This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. And that's good news for Watford fans as they get ready to appoint their fourth manager of the season. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. Also out in the next few days, you've got your Totally Football League show. Adrian, you're in that. Mm. With Matt Davis-Adams, that's actually Monday. Ooh, dramatic weekend for Oldham Athletic. They become the first former Premier League team to be relegated to the National League. Ay, 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 ay. Yeah, and, and the final, I don't know if you saw this, the game was held. It took about four hours to complete the game. What? Um, fans protesting against the, the ownership who have you know run the club into the ground. Uh, Lim Sagam brothers, deeply unpopular. And uh, yeah, they... They, they, they came onto the pitch with, I think, 12 minutes to go and they wouldn't get off. And in, in the end, they had to empty the stadium and the final 12 minutes was played behind closed doors, which was pretty depressing um, sight, really, for, for the club um, who are heading into the National League. But yeah, it's, every year there's one crisis club in the EFL mm. or in League Two that's run terribly uh, and, and that one. team almost invariably go, <laughs> goes out of the league. Yeah. And then for clubs like Oldham and Scunthorpe, who are not quite as an extreme situation, but a, a sort of slower death rather than a quicker one, it's so, so hard to get back up next season if they don't change that promotion picture. Because there are just there are clubs who are infinitely better run than them in the in the league below. And so they will just get clogged up in non league or national league mid table. Mm. Also out on Tuesday the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Among the topics in that, the Women's Champions League uh, semi-final first legs, which featured another huge result for Barcelona Femini in front of another huge crowd. 5-1 against Wolfsburg. Yeah, they... they these are becoming massive events, probably the best footballing events in Catalonia at the moment, given that the men's team keep losing at home. Um, I think they, they beat the record by a few hundred. Uh, it can't have been by much more than that because obviously the, the Camp Nou was full. Uh, they can't have built any more seats. But yeah, a, a dominant performance against Wolfsburg by Barca Femini. All things being equal, they should face Lyon in the final. They beat PSG 3-2 uh, on Sunday, which was a, a, much, a much tighter game, a much more dramatic game. Uh, the decisive goal, I think, was was the um, a terrible mistake by the PSG keeper, um, a, a, a kind of Zach Stefan esque mistake by the PSG keeper, and Barca Leon would be a really sort of narrative rich final. That was, you know, it's it's the team that established this idea of the original Galacticos in in women's football against the team that has taken their mantle. You got Leon desperately desperate to prove a point that that they were for a long time the greatest team women's football had seen. Barca came along, win a treble and kind of take that crown from them. And Leon, I don't think have taken that particularly well. Uh, so obviously it's only 3-2 the Leon-PSG game, but so PSG are not out of it by any stretch of the imagination. But Barca, Barca-Leon in the final would have a real sense of occasion about it. Mm. Uh, well, more on that come Tuesday and the Athletic Women's Football podcast. Before we wrap up today... Obviously, there were other Premier League matches that took place this weekend. Norwich losing 3-0 at home to Newcastle. Woof, that Joe Linton brace. Brighton with a 2-2 draw against Southampton after being 2-0 up, the Seagulls, and the goalless Leicester-Aston Villa game. What would you fancy discussing here, Daniel? 
Uh, I mean, a, another mention for for Joe Linton. I think this we've we've talked about his redemption in in recent weeks as a central midfielder. This almost feels like the final kind of panel of of that redemption in that Eddie Howe chose to make a number of changes, including resting Chris Wood and and, and put Joe Linton up as a striker again and. Having regained confidence in midfield, I think he'd scored twice from 41 shots before Saturday. He then goes back to being a striker again. And because he's he's full of confidence, he scores two from three shots, including, as you say, the first was a was a brilliant finish with his right. The, the, the second was probably will probably please Eddie Howe more because it was a kind of poacher's goal with his left foot. Uh, and I mean, we should say Norwich, the defending by Norwich for that first goal is just I mean, it's sort of seven ways of terrible. It's just, <laughs> that's why they're going down this season. It's it's just, it's a complete lack. I mean, I broke it down for the score, but it's just a like a cavalcade of men not tracking their runners and not noticing opposition players and then missing their kicks. And yes, it's a spectacular finish, but ugh, Norwich are something else in terms of shooting themselves in the foot. Is, is Eddie Howe a manager of the year contender? I mean, only City and Liverpool have accrued more points per game this year. They're fifth since he took charge. So if, you, if the table was to, you know, from matches just since he took charge, they'd be fifth. This is a team that were bottom when he took charge. Yes, he had a transfer window where where we got to spend a fair bit of money and Bruno Grimaraes is, is looking like a great investment, isn't he, uh, in mm. particular. But I just think that the way that he's coached that team, given largely the same group of players, the confidence to go out and play on the Premier League stage and express themselves in a way that they were never allowed to before, I think that deserves huge kudos. I think that the Eddie Howe stock, um, well, I don't think it could get much higher than it is right now. I think he's he's got to be in the frame, at least. Mm. Probably the manager that wins the title will, will, will walk away with manager of the year. But for the job that he's done and the turnaround... Eddie Howe would get my vote if I was to get one. Do you know, as a point of as a point of principle, it's, it would be easy to tell Adrian who's been ridiculous. But having just flipped through the <laughs> through the through the table, there isn't really another outstanding candidate because he's right that it'll be it will end up being Guardiola or Klopp. But I'm not quite sure whether that that is the point of things like the Manager of the Year award or the Player of the Year award. That, that there is an award that you get for being the person who has created the best team in the league and that that award is called the Premier League trophy and the I always think that the individual awards should be more to do with kind of people's achievements relative to their status almost how mm. you know how much have you have you affected your team so for the young player of the year it will be Phil Foden but it should probably be Conor Gallagher because he's had the most impact on his team even though Palace are 14th and aren't going to win the title Saka or someone like Saka maybe would be a good shout as well the with the manager the only person really who you could make a case has done a better job than how, and partly it's because of the fact it's over the course of the season, is probably David Moyes. There isn't anybody else who you look at in that table. Bruno, Bruno Lage has done a good job. Klopp and Guardiola have met expectations. But there's no one... There, there is. There probably isn't an outstanding candidate. Thomas Frank at Brentford? Yeah, he'd be that, that's, what, that's what I was going to mention. Maybe Frank. Just for doing it over the full... I mean... They're three points behind Newcastle now, and and how obviously with brilliance took over. I wonder if that kind of over the whole season work, and mm. and with a kind of rejuvenation or return of Christian Eriksen, I think that plays in his favour as well from a voting point of view. I wonder if Frank might get it. Fair enough. Can I also make a point on Norwich? Please do. Is that all right? Yeah. Um, there was an interview in the Times with Stuart Webber, the sporting director, on Saturday morning, and Stuart Webber's been one of those people who who. People like me and Daniel have have praised to the hilt for their sort of sensible work and how clever they are. And it's become that kind of fashion. I shouldn't really drag Daniel into it, but it's <laughs> yeah, cheers, that, mate. That kind of, there. That fashion, <laughs> it's become that fashionable thing to say, well, aren't Norwich well run? Hasn't Stuart Webber done a good job? You know, they're recruit clever. Sounds like me annoyingly. And it definitely sounds like me. And the he gave this interview in which there was a couple of weird lines. He kind of said it's not his job to appease Norwich fans. I think that is literally his job, is to, mm. to appease the fans of the club that he is running. And it all felt very kind of self, self-exculpatory. And I really, I really find it odd that, that you could sort of pitch yourself as that in a season in which Norwich's whole kind of, not logic but their, or, or their methods, but Norwich's whole kind of 
accepted acquiescence to their role as kind of the yo-yo team has been totally exploded as nonsense. If Brentford can stay up, mm. Norwich can stay up, at which point you have to say, why aren't Norwich staying up? Why why are you running a club that seems unable to remain in the Premier League when Brentford have, have made it not, not necessarily look easy, but prove certainly that it can be done on a budget that I suspect is smaller than Norwich's? And I find it really strange that, that there appears to still be this kind of acceptance that Norwich are doing all they can which is a point of view that I had until relatively recently. But ultimately, the evidence change. your opinion should change when the evidence changes and the evidence suggests that what Norwich are doing is not the limit of their, should not be the limit of their ambitions. Mm. And I feel as though that, that question probably has to be asked at some point, not necessarily of Dean Smith, who came in this season, but certainly higher up. I think there's, there's also a, and I know Watford fans certainly think that, I think when teams get sort of rooted perennially to the bottom of the table there's an almost a a kind of acceptance that there's nothing as you said there's nothing more you can do and also that relegation was an inevitability Uh, and Watford fans are are very quick to point out it was still only seven points or we were before this weekend um, six points from safety and we've been playing dreadfully at home all season and away from home on and off for most of the season and we're still only seven points in safety I think this this season more than any other was a real chance for Watford and Norwich to be better because the bottom six in the Premier League now have all changed their manager this season so all of them were in enough of a crisis at some point that they felt they had to make a significant change and yet even despite that they're still going to be cut adrift at the bottom which is it's not unforgivable because it's hard but there are things they could have done better certainly Speaking of things that could have been done better, uh, as I mentioned, there's also Leicester's goalless draw with Aston Villa. Remarkable stat, courtesy of producer Charlie. This was Leicester's 50th game of the season. They've played 15 more games than their opponents on Saturday, Aston Villa. That's the effect of the Conference League. The mm. um, This game should have been called off after 15 minutes when it became abundantly clear that nobody was interested in it whatsoever. I, I did um, BT Sports score on... Ah. Uh, on Saturday afternoon, and this was the game Robbie Savage was deputed to watch, obviously the former Leicester legend in inverted commas. And anyone who's met Robbie Savage knows he's a he's an ebullient, lively, outspoken sort of person. And even he, by the end of it, seemed to be bordering on clinical depression. He was he was <laughs> he was devastated to have to have to have watched it. And I think that that in those circumstances, fans should either be given a full refund and invited back for a better performance or the game should be called off after 20 minutes when it becomes clear that it's it's just not working. Right. Well, another level of excitement was the 2-2 draw between Brighton and Southampton just to wrap up the Premier League weekend with Saints coming back from 2-0 down and that was courtesy of that James Ward-Prowse brace. Sadly, the main takeaway from the game for me was that what looked a pretty horrific injury for Tina Livramento who kind of got oxygen as he left the pitch and Haas and Hootel was sort of consoling him. Um, the worst time of the season to get injured, I think, because it can ruin, especially for a young player, because it then, I mean, Adrian will know more than me, but it can ruin the pre-season that's then coming up. And if you miss the start of the next season, you feel like you're playing catch-up almost for the whole season, which is, I mean, he's he's massively talented. He'll get through it as long as he recovers fully. But um, yeah, real, real sad. But especially, it almost feels worse in a game that, Neither side needed to win and didn't really matter. Yeah, no, it's gonna. Yeah, it's gonna be a long road back, but he's he's young enough, um, young enough to come back and and come back and, and be just as good. Tina Livramento, yeah, one of the signings of the season, no doubt about it. On on James Ward Prowse, very quickly, that that hammer right foot of his is it is something else, isn't it? He's a he's a, a unique talent, especially from from the dead balls and yeah. It just I was thinking about this. It just made me think of it last night. After I watched it, and obviously all the stats were doing the rounds about how amazing his his dead ball record is, I just think he he has to be in the World Cup squad. I think he has to be in it, just because there there will be an occasion during that tournament where England are chasing a goal with twenty minutes left to play, and I think he's every bit as proficient in central midfield, or he can be over a twenty minute period as a Declan Rice, as a Calvin Phillips. As you know, as any of these, as a Jordan Henderson, but you've got the benefit of of the of, of the guy who, should you get a foul inside the final third, can come up and deliver can deliver a big moment. I, I, he would he would be absolutely in my squad 
<laughs> almost regardless of form. Really? What what is his strike rate on free kicks? Well, well he scored he scored more direct free kicks this season than anyone else. That's five. He's got nine since the start of last season. I think he's got more direct free kick goals than anyone across Europe's top five leagues. Um, and it's not just the free kicks. It's it's obviously his quality deliveries from wide free kicks from from corners, and and his ability to score from the edge of the box like he did in the game against Brighton. So I just think he he offers something unique to Gareth Southgate that, that can't really be ignored because in the last 15, 20 minutes of games, when you need a goal, you will get free kicks on the edge of the box and, and there's, there's no one better in the world, really, I don't think, than, than James Ward-Prowse. And you could, I think you could probably also argue there's, over the last two major tournaments, there's been no better team or no better country at maximising attacking set pieces than England. That that might be used by Southgate as an argument that he doesn't need Ward Prowse and that it's been working pretty well anyway. But we relied on Kieran Trippier for those deliveries before, and he might not might well not start. So, yeah, I I'm not quite as fierce in my opinion on it as as Adrian, but he's certainly a good kind of twenty third member of a squad. All right, well, there'll be loads of opportunity to discuss Gareth Southgate's plans for England, but that's where we wrap up today's. Totally Football Show, uh, European show out midnight Monday. Thursday, we're back with our reaction to the Champions League games. Ooh, and the third, fourth playoff in the Intertotally, which will feature Duncan Alexander against Julian Laurence. It's going to be a bitter, bitter battle, uh, that one. The following week, Daniel, it's you against Charlie in the final. How are you feeling? Yeah, well, I've always said all along he's the favourite, and I stick by it. Because that self-deprecation is the fuel on which football journalism is based. So. Right. <laughs> it really <Okay>. isn't. <laughs> no, it really isn't. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, many, many thanks. Look forward to that final and to seeing you all again soon. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. You as well, listener, and you, producer Charlie. Do catch up with us uh, at your earliest convenience throughout the week. And for now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on The Athletic app and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.